Hi, I'm Drithi Shah and this is my podcast, Have You Thought About? Thank you for joining us for season two. I'm a writer and I love to find out about what passions people are pursuing and also what makes them tick. The podcast is for those who are a reckoning and tired of being told that you can only have one focus or one thing that makes you you. In each edition, I'm going to chat with someone who breaks these lines and who's managed to fit things together in their life or profession that you might not think of as an obvious match. You're about to hear me chatting with Rama Sharma, an executive coach, artist and strategic leader. Hi Rama, now we've known each other for quite a while. We both met when we were both at the BBC, but that's a chapter that's now both in our pasts. So what is it that you're currently doing? I know that you've taken a multi-talented path. That's a great question. My leaving the BBC was very much about a gear change. So I think a lot of my success at the BBC and beyond the BBC was working really, really hard and unwittingly becoming a bit of a workaholic and my life centering too much around my work. So the step change is, you know, I want to make more time for family life. I'm, I'm currently pregnant. So thank you. Uh, it's actually been a quite a difficult journey. So it's been about making space for other things in my life. And you may have seen that I've done quite a lot of work on authenticity at the moment. I spent a long time thinking about what that means for me. And it means lots of things. And so I guess I'm trying to live my authentic life, of which work is important. And I've realized that, funnily enough, even more so after leaving a big job. But um, but it's only a part of my life and my identity. So if we pick up on that authenticity, you do have this podcast with Reuters, which is well worth checking out. In a world where often people have public personas, are very careful about how much they can give away. And, and there are lots of different components you have to give away in terms of this is my work life or this is my Instagram life or this is my whatever life. How are you navigating that when we are in quite a split universe, I guess? Yeah, and it's not easy. I mean, what I've tried to do is, even with my Instagram account, is yes, I've been fortunate enough to go on some nice holidays and do some cool things, but I like to think I want to be brave enough about talking about the hard stuff too and the dark stuff too. So there's something about authenticity, which is about, for me, sort of showing as much as that feels safe to me, like the scope and breadth of one's experience. And that doesn't mean, you know, you have to put your breakfast and lunch and dinner on on social media. But it's something that I'm playing with is a sort of flavor of realness and want of a better word. Yeah. How do we navigate all these challenges that are both you know good bad and ugly and sticking with the thing about authenticity you do a lot of executive leadership stuff you do a lot of what I'm going to call quite hardcore helping people why embrace that when you're also taking time for yourself having gone through quite a hardcore journalistic process and editorial process in this previous life of yours actually it's very rewarding I mean, I think one of the most rewarding things about the coaching I'm doing at the moment is giving a lot of meaning to my own experiences. You know, some of the stuff that I went through that was pretty challenging is not just personal to me. You know, it's personal to lots of women, lots of women of colour, lots of people of colour, or simply lots of people in very senior high pressure jobs. So there's something that's quite um, rewarding about being able to use your experience to support others but also helping them feel less alone. Because I think that was the one thing that struck me. You know, I look back at my career and now I'm providing various support mechanisms to other leaders. And I'm kind of making the stuff I wish I had myself or wishing the things that were different, trying to add that kind of level of detail and nuance to the work that I do and the coaching that I do. Because 
a lot of the coaching and workshops I went on, and I think they're improving now, didn't take account of my lived experiences, a woman, a working class woman, I guess I'm middle class now, a woman of colour, sort of navigating different landscapes. So it's like your identity was not really a part of the conversation when I think it's such a big part of your leadership journey. And so that's something I'm very aware of when I'm coaching people. And hence the podcast with all the leaders that I've interviewed. My focus hasn't been on what perhaps is other leadership challenges, but has actually been on a lot of their sort of personal stuff, but a lot of their identity-based challenges. And with the podcast, a lot of it is focused on people of colour, people who are from a global majority. We're often being described in the past as ethnic minority. In relation to that, how deliberate was that from the very outset? Because you are working with one of the most prestigious journalism organisations when it comes to training, when it comes to understanding beyond being in a newsroom, the Reuters Institute at Oxford. When you went to them and said, look, I want to create something that will benefit others, how receptive were they to that idea in the first place? Because we're still a minority in more Western societies when it comes to having people of colour in leadership positions. Yeah, well, I mean, firstly, they were amazing and still are. I mean, I'm really enjoying working with the Reuters Institute. It started off with me sort of sharing that, look, clearly people of colour have challenges that need to be articulated in a sophisticated way in a leadership context. And I sort of talked about the work I've done at the BBC, which is, you know, I wrote a paper and I also did start to do some interviews at the BBC, primarily with leaders from the UK. The Reuters remit is very much looking at amplifying the global south. So they sort of suggested, oh, well, how would you feel about speaking to leaders of the global south? Either perhaps a mix of both or focusing on them. And I thought that was a brilliant idea, actually. And so it kind of worked as a bit of serendipity, which is I wanted to share these experiences. And they were keen to look at the global South experience rather than the Western experience, which I think in recent years, you know, if you think about the UK and the US and post George Floyd, there has been a lot more talk about ethnic minorities, so-called ethnic minorities, as I say. (laughs) So the opportunity to look beyond was really exciting, actually. And the stories that you hear from leaders of the global South, women leading in India or African women leading in Nigeria or these stories of the people that I've interviewed or Marcelo, who's, you know, a leader leading in one of the most deadliest countries to be a a journalist. These stories provided a whole new perspective, a whole new kind of meaning to my question. And it was very humbling because, yes, there's challenges and then there's challenges that are existential. And there's challenges that are brutal. And Anup, one of the editors we interviewed, talked about the threat of deportation. I mean, I never had that. That was not the threat I ever had. So it was very humbling and hugely eye-opening. So yeah, and and like I said, Reuters have hired me because of my leadership experience, but you know, also my understanding of diversity and they've trusted me with that. So in that respect, it's been a real pleasure. One of the things that you've done for many other journalists is Open Doors. You have had quite a long thriving journalism career at a huge institution and you have taken on roles where you have perhaps been alone in terms of visibility, in terms of what you're representing. Factoring that in, it seems like you're finding a tribe of people who are ready to listen. How important is that element of belonging, but also embracing the difference that you can bring by not belonging either? What a great question. I think belonging is hugely, hugely important and 
it's really tricky as well, right? So a big piece of my work now, particularly since I've left the BBC, is thinking about, you know, as you put it, the tribe, who are the people that I want to work with or spend time with and nourish me and all of that. And, and interestingly, some of them are BBC or ex-BBC who were my tribe then and are still out now. Just because I've moved, they've not, not vanished from my life, luckily. So some of that still exists. But yeah, I actively now... You know, it's interesting as you kind of start thinking about motherhood. Now there's a sort of motherhood tribe. Extraordinary stories. I'm coaching some of those women. I'm friends with some women of how you're navigating a life of like being a ambitious career woman, but also wanting to have a family and how extraordinarily challenging and difficult that is actually. So I'm now sort of cultivating a new tribe, which also kind of includes women of those. And the point about not belonging. So the way I see it, I had to debate with myself for a long time is that do I want to do workshops that are just about diversity? My career at the BBC was primarily in digital strategy, digital transformation and journalism. It wasn't about DNI and I spent time doing DNI, but that wasn't, you know, the core of who I was. So I've had to wrestle with that a lot about, well, do I want to do this? And what happens if you go into rooms and you're just constantly exhausted because what's so obvious and in plain sight for you isn't for everyone else and they may choose or choose not to engage with it which can feel quite demoralizing and in the end so you know when you're talking about not belonging so it might feel you don't belong in say that space but the way I think about it now is that I know I have a set of skills that can be highly persuasive and make a case and because of my experience, I have a level of credibility, which means that some people will listen to what I'm saying. It might not be everyone. So I think about, okay, well, have I got the possibility to influence? You know, And if I think it's more than 50%, that's one tick. Secondly, what is the intention of the workshop? Like who's commissioning and why are they doing it? Are they well-intentioned? Is it because they actually care about this or is it because they've got a HR box to tick or some disgruntled members of staff to placate. What, you know, what's the intention behind the workshop? And in the case of Reuters, I do believe they genuinely care. Money is a part of it. You know, it's just going to pay me or pay me properly. So now I really think about those three things. And, you know, I have been approached by people who clearly want to it be a tick box exercise, or I know that this isn't really a part of the company's values or ethos. So me being there isn't going to create any change. So if that's the case, then I say no. But it is just about me thinking about if I can make a dent in that space, then I'll do it. So that's when I choose to be in those places and hopefully convert them into semi-belonging places. <laughs> semi-belonging, that's what we need. Focusing on that, and you raised the issues around motherhood, a challenge around motherhood. With that in mind, I wanted to actually ask you about your artwork, because that's something else that you've been quite heavily invested in, in terms of you've exhibited not so long ago, you have some beautiful artwork. Why it's so important to make sure that that remains such a core part of your life? I used to make art all my life and I did A-level art. And I think if being an artist had been an option, a career that sort of existed either in my sphere or in my parental sphere. I mean, I'm Indian, so of course it didn't really exist, but you know, it's, it might have been something I, I did very well at it. So, you know, it might have been something I pursued. Then I realized that for me, art has always been very, very therapeutic. So I noticed that I'd keep coming back to it, but I'd keep coming back to it, particularly at times of distress. 
And sometimes at times I didn't even know I was distressed. This is a very recent realization for me. So I went on courses. I did like courses at graphic design and illustration and these kind of things, fine art. I would get quite bored and I was thinking, well, why am I getting bored? Because I love art. And then I realized where well, usually I'd get bored is when I'm in a good place and I'm sort of intellectually interested in something or I've got my teeth into a project that I'm really enjoying. But I realized that when I was in a difficult place, when I was highly anxious or feeling lonely or isolated for whatever reason, then that art book was such a solace for me. It was a place where where we talk about authenticity, where I could be authentic when it was actually too difficult to articulate what I was feeling. And, you know, you could argue that these might be about trauma in the past or whatever. I realized that there were many moments in times I'd come back to my sketchbook at difficult times. And sometimes they would be very abstract kind of pictures and sometimes they'd be more illustrative. But whatever it was, it was clearly me articulating something I want to articulate, but not in writing or broadcast, but in this other medium that, to be honest, when I looked at those pictures, I think were really authentic. You know, there was no sort of censoring or, you know, manipulation of words. You know, it, it was it was raw kind of work. Literally, I didn't know that until when I was sort of in the process of deciding to leave the BBC. I knew that Art was a big part of my life, but I just didn't know what part it took. Like, I didn't, like, do I want to be an artist or what, what is it? Like, I hadn't even really thought that, oh, isn't it interesting that you do art when you're, you're basically upset, otherwise you don't really do it. I hadn't even thought of that. I just thought, you know, it seems like a nice thing that I do. So I said, well, when, once you've left, one of the things you can do is kind of explore this thing. You know, this thing, this itch that you wanted to scratch for a long, long time. I found a studio near where I live and I had a go. And I did it and it was such a journey because I found myself in the studio. I found myself sort of getting quite anxious and I'm like, well, why am I anxious now? I'm like, you know, here, here I am, my studio, <laughs> you know, making art. And then at first I thought, gosh, you're anxious because you don't even know how to relax and just enjoy yourself. <laughs> it was such a sort of foreign concept just to spend a couple hours just like making some nice pictures. You know, I'd spent all of my, you know, career up into that and doing serious business cases, you know, like serious work. And here I am. And I created this little book of all the monsters that sort of showed up for me, you know, like, oh, you're wasting your time. And then I drew a little monster, the wasting time monster. Or, And then if there's something, you know, it's like, oh, this isn't good enough. And then I drew a little monster for this is the not good enough monster. And, you know, I've got this little book of like all the kind of narratives that were that were coming up in my mind whilst I was simply trying to basically enjoy myself you know do do this art so I, I that was a very big lesson for me of like how the gear changed from moving out of a very intensive role that's very purpose-driven public service and how difficult was it for me just to simply be and relax and be in joy you know just be in flow and and so that took some time and then I finally got there and then I was dancing in my studio you know so it's, it's possible to make that transition so I did that for I guess about six months I kept an eye on worky stuff I didn't try to disconnect completely but it, I was sort of quite actively giving myself permission to do this thing just to see and then two interesting things happened one was I realized vehemently how I didn't want to do this for money like the idea of hustling, creating even an Instagram account to try to sell your work or trying to like that whole hustling part of it, I was just not interested. So I realized it did, my art wasn't for money making. I mean, if somebody wanted to buy it, sure. But, you know, I wasn't <laughs> going to 
it's not what it was about for me. And then coincidentally or not coincidentally, I then went through um, two awful experiences. I, I miscarried very early mm-hmm. at seven weeks, and then I lost a baby very late, five months, and I gave birth, and the whole thing was horrific. And the only thing that kept me sane, other than obviously friends and family rallied around me, was just going into the art studio and just making endless reams and reams and reams of work. So the studios where we have, we have a big art space, what we call a residency space or an exhibition space. And I was in there for a a week. I'd get there at 10 o'clock and leave at six o'clock every day, just covered in paint, making huge amounts of quite expressive, really big work, small work. And that's what I did. And I think that was sort of my way of expressing my grief. It was a way of being very at one with something other than being out of my head. You know, I can't describe why it was important other than that's what I wanted to do. So, you know, it's sort of back to the story of, you know, what is my art for? And I realized for me, it's, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a way for me to connect with myself in a really, really deep, authentic way very non-judgmental way and allow me to be ugly in my grief or in my sadness and in the past I know I've created things I couldn't even look at myself but in that moment I was giving myself permission to look at my whole self and go on I guess it's some kind of journey of acceptance of this has happened and this is how it feels and finding a way through that so what's really interesting now is I went through that process and I did, I did, you know, I talk about grieving properly. I feel like I grieved properly because I did that. I had like birth trauma therapy, my partner and I had bereavement counseling, took a bunch of time off just to nourish myself and, you know, we've come out of it. And now, you know, now we're going again in our next cycle, so to speak, but the pull to make art is very small right now. Like there's no pull for it. And I think that's, and you know, and I'm kind of just sitting with that. I'm like, that's interesting. That doesn't mean I don't. It's not meaningful to me, but it just feels like, yeah, it's what I, what I feel like doing now is writing and making podcasts and feeling more connected with people. Whereas if art can feel like a very place of solitude at its best and maybe isolation at its worst, but you know that that place and that's what I needed at the time. Whereas if that's not what I need now, so yes, yeah, so it's probably not the story, perhaps. People might think of, um, and I then did exhibit all that work, incidentally. I was going to yeah. ask on that, because on one hand, this is, you know, as you say, it's, it's very raw, it, it's personal, it's what came to you when you needed it. But then mm. you did take that extra step and you did exhibit mm. and you exhibited quite, I guess, quite widely. You know, people people came and, and the reception was very, very strong. So what you created in your own personal grief, it seemed to meet a need for others it doesn't sound like there was an intent for that but it sounds like that was a silver lining to what was a very difficult situation to have gone through like in terms of that exhibition were you expecting such positive reception well you're right I didn't I didn't plan on that at all literally one of the fellow artists because you know probably on some level I was thinking oh am I even a real artist this is what I this is what my art means to me you know you know at some level am I insulting all my fellow artists by even speaking about it in this way so there was no way that I was you know on some sort of thought about an exhibition tour my so one of my um, artists in the studio called Chris he saw my work and he said you should exhibit this I mean it was it was really as simple as that 
And I said, really, you think, you know, because it's all quite dark and, you know, we wanted to see this. And, you know, those were the kind of thoughts that was going through my mind. And then no, he said, no, it's really, really powerful. And you might be surprised about, by what people think about it. And then um, and then it just so happened Baby Loss Awareness Week was coming up in October. And I'd started going to, so the charity called Sands does um, a monthly kind of group for, you know, parents who've lost babies. It was very powerful to be, and my friend um, who, who wrote about this for the BBC as well, you know, recommended it and came with me. You know, we sat on, sat in this call and and noticed how powerful it was for us to share our stories with each other and support each other. So that coming together around grief is, I guess it's underestimated, you know, it's a very powerfully moving and healing experience for me and, and I think others in the group. So it sort of coincided with this and, you know, we had an exhibition space. So I said, well, if I am going to do it, then I could do it then. And that way it could be a, an opportunity for people to come round and share their experiences if they want to, or if, or just simply raise awareness. Cause it was, it's still, I was quite shocked at how little conversation there is about baby loss and also how few people have the language to help someone going through that and the different approaches to grief. And I'm lucky my husband was amazing, but there were lots of people who weren't, you know, and there were lots of people who got it wrong around me. And so I thought it would also be an opportunity to sort of, one of another word, educate, you know, people about that. So, yeah, so then we did it and it coincided with my birthday. So I said to people, well, instead of having a birthday party, you know, you know, you would come to my birthday party instead of that, come to my exhibition be with me at that point. And there was something about being brave enough to share it. It was kind of like, you guys know the sort of polished kind of, I think polished, <laughs> you, know, you know, the kind of... <laughs> The, the sort of BBC sparkly version of me, but uh, here's, 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 here's the human, you know, here's, here's me, um, warts and all, and um, feeling quite empowered to stand in that moment and feeling like my son outed me as an artist or at least that artistic side of me and feeling like I was owning all my feelings and sharing it with, with people who um, were dear to me so so yeah it, it it kind of did just happen by accident and it was it was a very again a very powerful experience so you can't underestimate that sort of sharing experience it feels like there's so much purpose in every path that you've either chosen to take or have found yourself in because of the way that life has turned out in that instance and this might be difficult but I'm going to throw it out there anyway because why not what would you want future Rama to remember about you at this particular moment? When you mean future, you mean like 80-year-old or? <laughs> it could be 80-year-old Rama. It could be like, it could be like, you know, five years time. But in terms of everything that you've gone through, and I'm not just talking mm. about the neg. I don't, you know, not just about all the very, very difficult life challenges you've had, but all these sort of, okay, I've learned this or this is where I am. What have you learned that you know is actually now going to be a permanent, a cognitive change perhaps, or a permanent shift from the last sort of short period of time that you know is now going to stick with you forever? Um, I guess there's something that's 
I've been thinking about for the last probably five years. You know, it's the sort of there's something I've been working on for five years, and that's only been crystallized by the recent events. Is I think I definitely grew up, and and you know they talk about men having this quality, but I think I definitely grew up in or was raised in a way of like you sort of get on with it. You know, it doesn't matter what's happening. You just just sort of um, you get on with it. So you might be feeling all kinds of things, but you just keep working and you just keep going, and you don't always necessarily acknowledge your feelings or acknowledge complex and difficult emotions and. And that's really, uh, that's a really bad idea. <laughs> and, you know, so it, on one hand, it does make you resilient. You know, I talked about, I'm sorry to drop the podcast again, but I talked a lot about this with Rupa Jar. She's the head of India at the BBC. And, you know, she was talking about how you just ignore things because you've got to get on. You know, she, when she was talking about sexism and sexist remarks, you just just keep going. And obviously the benefit of that is that you progress, but there's a cost to that, cost to your soul, you know, your emotional self. And equally, you might be carrying wounds or you might not realize you're wounded or you're burnt out. All those things happen, as I think, as a result of not being really self-aware. So that has been a big journey for me. You know, now I practice a lot of mindfulness. Now I'm very big on being self-expressed, you know, whether it's in my art or in conversation. Coaching requires a lot of self-awareness. And then so, you know, the fact that I had been on that journey, I think, is what meant that when I was then grieving, I grieved. I was not afraid to do that. I wasn't afraid of what people were going to think of me or I didn't couldn't care less. I just thought oh, I was just thinking about my son anyway, but I did it. You know, I, I was unafraid of how people might have judged me in a way that I probably would have cared about before. And as a result of that, I think I'm sitting here in front of you well and, you know, moving on with my life without carrying the weight of a repressed feelings just because other people, you know, may have assumptions about, about me because of them. So I think being really aware of how I feel and how I feel in the moment and finding ways to express that in meaningful ways uh, means that I have a better relationship with myself, with others in workplaces. Like I think so much, and you know, so much of the DNI work is trying to get people to talk about the uncomfortable bits of it. So much of it, before I say, before we're going to talk about strategy and all that, like, how do you really feel about that? Like, how do you feel as a white man talking about diversity? Like, you know, go there and it's messy and it's, it's a lifelong journey. If I can continue to cultivate that, I'll be proud that I would be on this journey, regardless of how hard it is. But I know it's the right one. And it's obviously what I want to pass on as well to hopefully my baby. The wonderful Rama Sharma, executive coach, artist, strategic leader and more. Do you have an interdisciplinary life? Because I would love to hear from you and perhaps we can chat on this podcast that goes with my newsletter, which is called Have You Thought About? It can be found via www.drutishah.com. Please join me next time for a fun conversation with another guest who likes to mix up lots of things in their life. If you like the podcast, do share, rate and review. It's an independent podcast and if you find it helpful, then let people know. Thank you to Reen Shah for the music. <laughs>